in one night Turkish army come to our city and uh, not just them alone, uh, many uh, ISIS actually came with them and attacked uh, our city and started uh, bombing our city, my friend, and we ran away uh, from the war actually. And uh, we got out from our city and we came here to Kurdistan border. And uh, there are many people took uh, uh, money from us to arrive us here to Kurdistan actually. That's Ibrahim Jaloud el Kif, a 23-year-old man from the Syrian city of Ras al-Ain. He is one of the more than 100,000 people who have been displaced by a Turkish offensive in northern Syria. And he's one of the nearly 15,000 people who have escaped the fighting by crossing the border to northern Iraq. Now, he's living in a sea of tents that are being erected in a new refugee camp to accommodate the new arrivals. While the numbers are still small compared to the 6.5 million internally displaced and the 3 million who have fled the Syrian war, the UN and Iraqi authorities are warning that the numbers could rise rapidly if the conflict isn't halted. They're also worried about the coming winter, with temperatures plunging, bringing heavy rain and snow, while thousands live in thin tents. This is Beyond the Headlines, I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're looking at the situation for the newly displaced refugees fleeing a Turkish offensive at home as they seek safety in northwest Iraq. October 9th, after months of warning, Turkey launched an offensive across its southern border into Syria. The move came after US President Donald Trump pulled his forces back, effectively greenlighting the operation. The move abandoned America's Kurdish and northern Syrian allies, who had done much of the fighting in the long campaign against ISIS in Syria. The local Kurdish, Arab, Assyrian and other assorted groups pushed ISIS out of their homelands in a grinding four-year campaign. In its place, they built a self-governing state that the Kurds called Rojava. Until October 9th, the area was one of the most stable and secure in all of Syria, wrecked by eight years of civil war. But Turkey sees the People's Protection Units, called the YPG, as an offshoot of the Kurdistan Workers' Party an armed group with which they have fought a decades-long insurgency. Ankara says it wants a safe zone on its borders for protection, and it sent the military alongside its allied Syrian militias across the frontier to enforce one. Then, in a bid to save what they'd built, the Kurdish authorities made a deal with Damascus to allow the return of Syrian government forces to a region they'd largely pulled out of years before. At the end of October, Ankara and Moscow made a deal for more Russian troops to enter the Syrian-Turkish border region and pave the way for a ceasefire. While the fighting has largely stopped, there are still skirmishes, and Turkey is still warning that it could restart the offensive and push south. This move has upended the map of Syria. But in the process, thousands have been displaced. The UN says it's already over 100,000 that have been pushed from their homes. Most have remained inside Syria, moving south from the border region and its cities of Kamishli and Kobani. But thousands of others have managed to cross into Iraq. But many of those are saying that the Syrian Kurdish authorities are trying to stem the flow, fearing what might happen if thousands turns into tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, and the population of the region departs. Over the last few days, the National has had a team on the ground, 
meeting with those arriving in the semi-autonomous Kurdish region of Iraq. Peshmerga, the military forces of the Kurdistan Regional Government, or KRG, have advanced to the Syrian border to screen and process those arriving. The KRG is welcoming those arrivals, building new refugee settlements and providing assistance. Other organisations like the UN are also working, but resources are already stretched and there were worries about what comes next. In recent uh, weeks, and due to new violence in the northeast of Syria, many uh, hundreds of thousands of Syrians were displaced. They went to places that are uh, much safer than the conflict points. So they've, they went to Hasaka, they went to Raqqa, they went to other places, big towns and small villages. And wherever we can reach them, and wherever we have uh, IDP camps, camps for displaced persons, uh, or uh, any of our uh, centers uh, or shelters, we receive them and provide the necessary humanitarian assistance. However, some people, and um, fleeing for their lives, sometimes decide to cross international borders. Therefore, they become refugees. And uh, so far, uh, crossing over from uh, Syria into Iraq, we have uh, roughly some 13,000 people. As, uh, as part of our response in Iraq, we have a contingency plan and preparedness for emergencies, up to 50,000 refugees. And in case there are more, we can uh, deploy more humanitarian assistance from our regional hubs in, uh, nearby within hours. Uh, we can't anticipate how many may decide because, you know, it's fluid and uh, based on uh, how people uh, evaluate and how they see the security situation, they may decide to come anytime. However, we stand ready with the local authorities and our humanitarian partners to uh, receive them, register them, uh, provide them with uh, hot meals, registration, uh, health care and protection services. We uh, don't work alone. We have UN sister agencies and uh, many humanitarian partners and the local authorities. And uh, we have an, a sectarian approach. Uh, each sector provides like healthcare. There's several partners that deliver uh, vaccinations, uh, medical assistance. We have the protection registration section that we uh, lead. We have water and sanitation and hygiene. So uh, we have many partners coming together in these locations to provide the necessary services. However, uh, this, the winter is a challenge, not just for these uh, Syrian refugees, but for the Syria uh, operation, the Syria crisis. As you know, we have uh, several million of Syrians uh, uh, living outside of Syria and uh, so, uh, something in the range of seven and a half million displaced internally. So every year uh, we have an appeal for the winter and we do a campaign to uh, provide. So far the Syria um, appeal is, is uh, only 29% funded and we require more funds. That's Faras Al-Khatib from the UNHCR. Winter is also one of the most pressing concerns for the new arrivals. Here's Ibrahim again. The winter now uh, came and uh, actually the weather here in uh, Kurdistan, uh, now we are here in camp in tent. Uh, if uh, the, the, the rain came heavily, came down heavily, we will be in a bad, actually not just bad situation. As you, you, you look now, uh, there are many refugees uh, with them, children, my friend. We worried about this thing, my friend, actually, yeah. Because, my friend, we will be in bad situation in that time. We're now joined by Jack Moore, our deputy foreign editor, and Willie Lowry, a video journalist in our multimedia team, to talk about the situation on the ground in Iraq. 
They've just got back from Kurdistan, where they met with Ibrahim and Faraz. Jack and Willie, thanks for coming on the show. Um, what was the situation like in the Kurdish regional government in, in northern Iraq? Um, so we left from Erbil and we went to a camp called Gawalan, which is just an hour outside of Erbil, and it's halfway between uh, Bardarash camp. Now, Bardarash is the biggest camp in this area. It's holding 12,000 Syrian Kurdish refugees that have fled the Turkish offensive, and it's now at capacity. So before we went there, we went to Gawalan, which is an existing camp, but they've built a new section just for the Syrian Kurds that are arriving because they're at capacity at Bardarash. So when we arrived, um, there were white tents everywhere, but still it was under construction. So people were still making concrete bases for the tents that were being set up, awaiting new arrivals because the weather conditions are set to worsen and they're anticipating uh, more of an influx of refugees coming from that area. Just to get this straight, this is people who have been displaced in the last couple of weeks. This is since the start of the Turkish offensive last month. Yeah, these are people that are just specifically displaced by the Turkish offensive on northeastern Syria from cities like Kamishli and Hasaka and villages and towns around those areas. And these people have made arduous journeys to get to these camps. So there's only one crossing that's still open, Peshkabur, on the Iraqi-Syrian border. And the Syrian Kurds have made it increasingly difficult for them to cross because they want to keep the Syrian Kurds there to prevent the Turks repopulating these areas. So these people that we met in the camps, they've made journeys that could be up to you know, 200, 300 kilometers by foot, by car and by horseback, um, often paying smugglers to reach uh, their destination. So yeah, me and Willie managed to speak to a few of them and learn more about their stories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was it's a very interesting time to to be there because in in Gawilan we actually saw how they set up these camps and it's essentially like building a small city. So when you arrive there's, you know, it it's broken down into quadrants into sections and with white chalk they they actually outline what is going to be the foundations of each tent. So it was like very interesting to see and they had rows and rows of this and as Jack was saying, you would then see them actually building the foundations of this. And you know, they're going as fast as they can because they've already had about 15,000 refugees come in in just the last three weeks. So some of the officials we spoke to within the Kurdish government uh, said that their worst case scenario is about 250,000 refugees. And they were s said quite simply that would be a human catastrophe they just weren't, would not be equipped to, to handle that number uh, of people coming in. I mean, part of the issue here as well is that there are already hundreds of thousands of refugees living in this region. Yeah, so already the KRG is hosting 1.1 million refugees from the ISIS occupation, those who fled northern Iraq into this area of the world, and many of them are Sunni Arabs. Um, so this number may seem small, 15,000. But it's simply because they predict that if the Turkish offensive is resumed, they could get up to a quarter of a million people. And many of these people don't have money, they have many needs, and the KRG itself is facing a financial difficulty. So it, it can only look after 60,000 people. So it's going to be interesting to see if, if once, once they pass that number, how they're going to be able to cope with the influx. We, I just want to come back. So earlier in the year, you were in northeastern Syria and you were doing some stuff about the fall of ISIS. What's 
up until the start of the Turkish offensive, what was the situation in this region? Well, I mean, so I was there in February and the beginning of March uh, down in Deir Zor and Baguz where, you know, uh, as many people now know, uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces managed to, with the help, of course, uh, of the U.S., essentially, you know, eliminate the, the caliphate. You know, one of the things that I find most tragic about what's happened in the last month or so is that I spent a lot of time in the city of Kamishli. And I was amazed that while you have this war that has been raging for eight years, the Kurds had managed to build this this city, this region that was functioning, that was, you know, people were out in the streets, they were in the souks, they were buying things, they were going to school, they were going to work, you know, despite everything that was going on around them. It was not untouched, but relatively protected from the chaos of the war. And unfortunately now, I mean, that's quite just not the case. Many, many Kurds from Kamishli are now in northern Iraq as refugees. And when these people were arriving, you know, you're talking about people arriving on foot after long journeys. Were they arriving with literally nothing but the shirts on their back? What was it like as these people were coming in? Yeah, so they were literally arriving with not much. And we spoke to people like a man who had fought in the Syrian army, had left, went to Kurdistan, came back to northeastern Syria and then the offensive started and he had to flee with his wife and his uh, baby daughter. They had to take their child on horseback, like a one-year-old kid um, crossing into you know northern Iraq. So a lot of these people were very upset about the journeys they had to take. And the money, the money they did have when they arrived, they've had to use their money um, already and they've run out already from the people we've spoken to. So at Bardarash, which is at capacity, they get meals for the first 10 days. And after that, no food. So one woman we spoke to, she pointed to the stalls at Bardarash and basically behind these chain fences, there's lots of stalls that sell all the food and goods you need. But these people are selling food, drink and all the necessities they need at double the price that they can get from Bardarash town. But the camp authorities won't let them leave to go to Bardarash town, for example. So they have to pay their money at extortionate rates to just feed their children and themselves. So it's pretty harrowing. And it, we don't know how they're going to make money. And they said themselves, they don't know how they're going to make any money. Um, one guy, 23-year-old Gavilan, um, he fled on his own so he could come to make money and send back to his family. But there's no real idea of how they're going to be able to go and get a job and make money. They don't get citizenship when they arrive. They don't become... Iraqi citizens because both of their parents have to be Iraqi to get that. So their future at the moment, unless they're able to return safely, which many of them can't because of the fear of the Syrian regime or the Turkish offensive, they lo it looks like they're going to be languishing in these camps for a while and they're very unhappy about it. And even one person said they're treating us like we're in a prison and this is you know, at camps that are meant to be helping them. Yeah, I was going to you know, add, as you were saying, there are only some people are days into this. At most, they're three weeks into this, and the frustration is is already palpable. So this really, long-term, it does not feel like a sustainable situation. And, you know, as Jack was saying, in many cases, you know, so they have no income coming in, but they're not being provided food anymore after 10 days. So, I mean, the math really, it just doesn't add up. And also, just to kind of break this down as well, you know, we're talking about 
a largely Kurdish region of Syria and a Kurdish region of Iraq. And yet there are stark differences politically, at least in, in terms of nationality between the two sides, right? Yeah, there are differences uh, in the politics, but from the, the Kurds we spoke to, they were more than happy to be helping out their fellow Kurds from Syria and to welcome them into these regions. And they're actually welcoming people who aren't Kurdish as well. So they're welcoming Christians and uh, Arabs are even able to come in. So we spoke to a smuggler and smugglers are smuggling Arabs as well for, for higher rates. So... And every person that gets smuggled across has to be welcomed by the Peshmerga. So we went down to Suhaila uh, border crossing, which is where a lot of them are being smuggled across. And when they come across the border, they after they've been dropped off uh, on horseback, they do the walk across the border and they're welcomed by the Peshmerga at a welcome center, um, screened for security, tested for diseases, illnesses, and given a hot meal and then they're taken onto the camps. So actually it was really interesting to see how welcoming the Kurds were, despite their financial difficulties, that they weren't restricting it to certain groups of people. Yeah, and, and everybody we spoke to had glowing reports of that first encounter with the Peshmergas. They were all incredibly grateful at, at how well they were welcomed. And, you know, almost all of the Kurds we spoke to express a, a sense of pride and importance in, in welcoming these refugees. I think they see it as as a duty. They themselves are minorities within, of course, Iraq. And so they really think it's it's the right thing to do to, to try and, you know, provide at least some semblance of, of home or shelter for these people. And so what we have now is a situation with just too many people to be able to provide, you know, a lot of resources to all of them, given that, as we mentioned, we've got over a million who have been there from the displacement of Mosul offensive, etc. Uh, and now these additionals, you know, it's not about, you know, fear of people coming in or anti-refugee sentiment, that kind of thing. No, the, the only fears we heard were that maybe elements of extremist groups might use this route to enter the KRG. So we spoke to security officials and they said this is a way that they could hide from intelligence services in Syria, from the forces in Syria, or for, even from Iraq. People have used Kurdistan as a place to seek shelter and stay away from the eyes of security services. So that's the only thing that we heard in terms of fears. The real fear for them is that they just can't cope with the amount of people and with the amount it's going to cost. And with the winter coming, um, it's going to become a lot harder and these people will become a lot more frustrated. I mean, when we saw the tents... People were telling us that you know, days before we arrived, it was bucketing down with rain. Rain was entering their tents. So if, if you're sleeping at night, you're going to get rain. You could get rained on. Um, it's not an ideal situation, and it gets very windy there as well. And you know, it gets below zero degrees in the later months, especially in December. So it could snow there. I, I spoke to NGOs who said they're going to provide heaters, blankets, and they have a whole winterization program. But again. This is only for up to 60,000 people, the same as the KRG. So if the influx does go above that, uh, it could be, as one official said, a humanitarian disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. And the very layout of these camps leaves them incredibly exposed to the elements. So obviously they're not paved. It's it's all hard-packed dirt in, in cases like Galiwan. 
you know, freshly kind of packed down dirt. So anytime it rains, it gets incredibly muddy. Once it gets muddy, you know, that's tracked into the homes. It's just really hard for, for people to stay comfortable. Uh, and obviously once, once you, you know, snow and colder weather enters the equation, it gets even more difficult for, for people to stay warm. And do you get a sense talking to UNHCR and the humanitarian agencies who are also looking at this, that, you know, we've seen these mass displacements from the Syrian conflict. Do you get the sense that they are ready for potentially another mass displacement? Or do you think that at the moment they're just so stretched with, you know, refugees from Lebanon to Jordan to Turkey, inside Syria itself, in Iraq, and now an additional? I think at the moment they're ready and prepared for the situation that there is now. But as I said, it just depends on the politics of the region and the decisions made by the regional players. So if Turkey does want to displace everyone from northeastern Syria and replace them with Sunni Arabs, then they're not going to be prepared for it. Uh, they, As you said, they're already dealing with many other mass displacement issues elsewhere. So I just don't, I don't think they're ready if it passes that 60,000 threshold. And in terms, you mentioned that, that these people are paying a smuggler. Tell me how that's, that's sort of going down. So it's happening in different ways. In the Syrian towns and cities, word of mouth is getting around that you can use a smuggler to get across to northern Iraq and you can be received by the Peshmerga and you'll get into these camps and potentially be looked after and find shelter. But some people are just heading straight for the border where they meet smugglers close to the border and others, they're sharing numbers, getting in touch with one and then they will pick them up take them to like a safe house where they're keeping quite a few of them and then from there that's when they'll go by foot or horseback to the border and the rates that we were told uh, varied greatly so some people it's like $200 for a man another person told us that it was like $500 for a child and people weren't happy that these smugglers were taking advantage of fellow Kurds we spoke to an Arab smuggler but they're also Kurdish smugglers charging $500 for a baby to be smuggled across. But again, these areas aren't thriving economically, so people are all trying to take advantage however they can, like the store owners in Badarash, doubling their prices. These smugglers are trying to make money for themselves and taking advantage of the desperation that they find. And when we spoke to a smuggler ourselves, we were quoted $3,000 for free Arabs, for a man, a woman, and a 10-month-old baby girl. And what's interesting is that many of them were scared to share details about the smugglers and share their numbers. So there's an element of using them just to get to safety, but after that, like, worried about their own safety from the smugglers. And it's because some of them actually believe that they could return home one day. Uh, we also, we spoke to someone who works with, with these refugees, and he had a really good line where he said, you'll never meet a smuggler and a gentleman. You know, these these are people who are taking advantage uh, of people who are in their most vulnerable state, right? So they're they're not they're not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. This is pure capitalism. They're they're doing it to to try and make money. And and the smuggler, they're also the. It's a very, they themselves are very cautious. So trying to just get in contact with the smuggler was really difficult and. He asked how we got his number and we had to then, I mean, you know, essentially trick him. We said we got it from someone else. He then said, oh, I don't remember that person. 
and asked for the name and number, we actually had to use a second phone number that we had, gave it to him, and he called it. Literally within 15 seconds of hanging up from him the first time, the phone, the second phone we were using rung. I mean, we were we were like flabbergasted. A that it, it they work that quickly, and that w- they would you know be so aggressive on that. And and it took a lot of massaging and coaxing to to convince them to even just give us a quote. And also, just a month ago, the border crossings here were also a vital lifeline for goods coming in and out of northern Syria. Right. This is this is a border that that was a lifeline from Iraq into Syria that has now been closed, essentially. I can't speak to it. I mean, while we were in the vicinity, there were dozens and dozens of trucks still going going in and out. I think from my understanding of the situation, Peshkabor is, is still open. The problem is the Syrian Democratic Forces don't want to lose their population, so they're making it very difficult for the Syrian Kurds in that in, in Rojava or in northeast Syria to leave, and that's why they're having to try and find alternative routes, and in that case, smugglers to help them get to the Peshmerga or Kurdish forces just on the other side of the border. And in terms of the other thing that's changed quite dramatically in the last month is the return of the Syrian government, the government in Damascus to this northern region, which haven't been there for you know, five, six, seven years now. What has that you know, sparked in people? People are afraid of, of this return. Yeah, people are very afraid of this return because the Kurds have long been marginalized under the Syrian regime when it did control the entirety of Syria. And we spoke to a guy who fought in the Syrian army. He showed us his ID card, but he was like, yeah, I left because they, t- they were telling me to kill people and I didn't want to do it. This was in 2012, like a year into the civil war. So he left for Kurdistan years ago to seek safety from the regime and, and in returned. The eyes of Damascus, he's a deserter. Yes. He's a deserter and he's a Syrian Kurd now who they they want to take their land and if he goes back he's worried about uh, retribution being exacted by the Syrian regime. So it's a very scary time for these people because not only is it the regime but it's also the Turkish offensive and the rebel proxies that are believed to hold remnants of ISIS, Al-Qaeda extremists. So they have this double-pronged front that they've had to flee and the, op- the option of returning at the moment is just not possible for them. But what's interesting is that some of the people we spoke to do hold hope about going back and that's why they didn't want to be identified or didn't want to talk about the regime or the smugglers because they believe they will return one day and they don't want to get into trouble. Yeah, and the vast majority of the refugees are women and children, I think about 70%. But we actually came across a lot of young men who fled because, you know, the regime has mandatory conscription. So these are people who, if the regime found them, they'd be forced to join the military or be put in that deserter position. And they, in, in one case... You know, this young man had to abandon his whole family and and flee. It was, as he said, the hardest decision of his life. But it was either stay and potentially get found out and forced into the army or or go and and try and, uh, you know, live in safety and and potentially make money to to send home. And this, you know, we've seen in other areas of Syria where the regime have returned. They've made these promises and, you know, agreements with local groups that – we're not going to come looking for people who either 
didn't join when they should have done or haven't completed their conscription or left or whatever. But that's often been gone back on, that, that people have ended up a few months down the line getting arrested, et cetera. And, and so, you know, some of these fears that people like him have are, you know, quite valid um, in that sense. Yeah, I think there's just a massive lack of trust after eight years of civil war and horrible crimes committed by the Assad regime. They don't trust his government and they don't trust Russia, they don't trust Turkey. And there's a lot of people they can't trust. But in the KRG, they have at least a government that has welcomed them with open arms. This was Beyond the Headlines. Thanks this week to Jack Moore and Willie Lowry here in the studio, as well as Ibrahim Jaloud Al-Kif and Faraz Al-Khatib in northern Iraq. Hit subscribe in your podcast app to hear all the latest episodes of Beyond the Headlines. We were produced this week by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan.